Hi everyone, Mike here. Today's episode is with the lovely Lisa Baru from the world of VFX production. I had a great time chatting with Lisa, who just seems like she'd be the best boss, to be honest. She certainly made me giggle a few times. In the episode, we discuss working with David Fincher on multiple projects, including Benjamin Button, producing a South by Southwest winning short film with Shrek director Vicky Jensen, whether you need to study VFX to get a job in the field, what a VFX producer does and how it works to CGI major Hollywood movies, her experience VFX producing on Marvel's Black Panther, how to stand out as an intern, and much more. That's enough from me. Here's Lisa. I think we got away with it because we were making Brad Pitt old, and no one knows what he looks like old yet. And I think that that's a real saving grace for digital humans. Hello and welcome to Red Carpet Rookies. My name is Mike Battle, a film crew member turned screenwriter working in London. Each episode, I bring you life lessons and stories from the people behind your favorite movies and shows to help demystify the business for aspiring filmmakers and fans alike. Thanks for joining me. Let's get started. Today's guest is a first for the show, someone at the top of the game in the field of VFX production. Starting her career producing commercials, she transitioned to James Cameron's famous VFX house, Digital Domain, where she worked on titles including 47 Ronin, Her, and a multitude of David Fincher projects including Zodiac and The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Since leaving DD, she has progressed to be a VFX producer of hits such as Black Panther, Terminator Dark Fate, and Sonic the Hedgehog 2. Our guest is Lisa Baru. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, thank you. Now, Lisa, I ask all of my guests the same first question, and that is, what did your parents do and did it affect your career choices growing up? Uh, my father uh, and mother are both teachers. So no, I was definitely not a, a film baby. So where did that first idea to work in film television come from then? Uh, I was hired out of college in New York City. I was attending Pace University for finance. And uh, I, I they had a famous work-study program there, and I worked at Shearson Lehman and various other law firms and their accounting departments. And I was horrified that I'd spent this many years studying something I didn't want to do. And uh, they had a really good uh, recruitment program there. And I was sent to a small production company on an interview to work in the accounting department. And that's how I got started in the film business. Interesting. So for people who are listening, obviously you didn't study VFX or anything related. And I know it's slightly different for producers and artists, but trying to cover both bases a bit, would you recommend those wanting to get into VFX study it in college? You know, I, I don't, I just think you need to be a well-rounded human being um, with a good brain and a questioning mind. And I don't think that my accounting and finance courses hurt me on the producing side. It probably swayed me in that direction. I, I think uh, if I'd had more of an art background, I might have gone for costume design, but that just wasn't me. So I don't I don't think there's if you really know what you want to do, that's great. You can you can go study costume design. I just didn't have that. Do you see anyone coming up these days in your departments where Maybe there are artists who are self-taught almost online just because of the availability of materials these days. Does that happen at all? No, most people seem to have studied something in college. I haven't, I haven't seen any self-taught people that I would love to because I think that's possible. 
Yeah. So next up, you moved into what was at the time, you know, the crazy world of live action commercials. Mm-hmm. What were your first days there like? And how did you kind of make a name for yourself in that business when you were starting out young? Well, it took a really long time to make a name for myself. <laughs> I, you know, I was uh, working in the accounting department and I was young. You know, I was in my early 20s and I thought that what the other kids were doing, you know, the actual filming was really groovy. So I showed up at night and on the weekends to sweep the floor. And then I moved into craft services. And then because I was an, in the accounting department, the next thing I did was do everyone's petty cash for them. So I, I became the girl walking around with a giant wad of cash and her money belt, <laughs> uh, dispensing dispensing money. And this is in the mid 80s in New York City. So it was very exciting for me to feel like I was around interesting, creative people, even if I was coming at it from the money side. Do you remember any particularly interesting moments? Because I know you traveled around the world quite a lot with it, didn't you? Yeah. I think my first experience going on location was uh, there was a big crew of people there. They're making car commercial in upstate New York. And I'd never been on a set before, you know, on location. And I rode up there with a, a big wad of cash because they were out of cash. And they were all installed in this funky hotel in the middle of nowhere. And I got this thing slid under my door, which was the call sheet, telling me to be outside at 5 a.m., which I thought had to be a joke, you know, because I hadn't any experience with that yet. So I remember it, it being in my pajamas and getting out of bed around 5.30 and opening my door is one of those, you know, cinder block, double decker hotels with the rooms stacked right next to each other. And the second AD happened to be walking by, he reached in and grabbed me by the shirt and swung me outside and shook me down and said, you're late, get dressed. <laughs> <laughs> Even though I was only there to bring money. Uh, but uh, yeah, that was my first big set experience. Quite the awakening. Yeah, it was shook me up. <laughs> Quite a few of the people that we speak to on this podcast who are HODs now and things like that, they started working commercials, but the business has changed quite a lot really, hasn't it? Do you think that's something that people should really get involved with if they're trying to move into crew or do you feel like it's something that's actually a bit of a bygone era? Well, sometimes I see good commercials and I'm heartened to know that there are still people fighting. I think when I was doing it in the 80s, that they spent a tremendous amount of money. You know, everyone was outrageous and flamboyant and the clients didn't get monitors or get to discuss what lens would be used on the camera the way they did. I think after about 18 years, I was in, I did that for about 18 years. And by the time I left commercials, it was, you know, run by cost consultants and and the clients were basically running the set, which and the money was not there, the spend to do creative things. But I I don't think I know enough about it, what's happening right in this moment to say either way. I do see good commercials. So hopefully. Now before we talk about digital domain and your move into the VFX world, I saw that you produced a short film, Family Tree, which did incredibly well. And we like talking about short films on Red Cubby Rookies because mm-hmm. lots of the listeners want to make them. It's a good way and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, what were your memories of making it and what lessons, I guess, did you take for it for those looking to do the same? Well, it was, you know, it was a really fun experience. Vicki Jensen, the director, uh, is a, a, a very smart woman and, you know, trying to have an experience doing live action. And I thought it would be nice to try a longer format. 
And uh, I think we, I emptied my house of all the furniture to get the set designed. <laughs> but, I, you know, we had a good time. We did it for a, a very small amount of money. And I was able to have the experience of doing the film festival routine afterward, which was very new for me. And she was able to, you know, direct the cast and it and enabled her to get a movie, you know, a live action movie after that. Yeah. Oh, interesting. It's funny you touched on the festival thing there, because that was one of the questions I wanted to ask. It won a lot of awards for those listening. It got into Sundance. It won special jury at South by Southwest. Uh, was there any kind of tactic, because you were just producer on that, full out producer. Was there any tactics you had to position it for festival success? I did a lot of the submission paperwork with Vicky. I don't know that anything was done to position it to win anything. I think it it seemed to just happen. <laughs> if, if something was happening behind the scenes, uh, Vicky never let on. I think we were both just pleasantly surprised. It just seemed to do well in the year that we released it out there. Now, Digital Domain is where you started kind of moving into the world of VFX from what I can see. Could you define for any uninitiated listeners what the role of the VFX producer actually is? Because a lot of them probably don't know that specific role. Well, the, the reason I was able to be at Digital Domain at all was because of a five-year or six-year stint that I did at Rhythm & Hughes, uh, where I worked in their commercial division. They did live-action editorial and visual effects, and I was still the producer. But I would also get the visual effects supervisor and they would send us out and I would have to manage both of them because we were kind of a soup to nuts sort of machine there. And uh, so that's how I got my entree because I'm curious. I have a, you know, I like to ask a lot of questions. I thought the visual effects supervisors were interesting people. And so that's how I, I started to learn about when you film things with visual effects, the considerations that you need to have. And then I was at A52 after that, which also did the same thing. That was a, a smaller scale company owned by Angus Wall. I don't, I don't know if you know who he is. He, he was David Fincher's editor at the time. Oh, wow. And he and his wife had a company that did visual effects and editorial. Then I went to Digital Domain, where I was hired to do the same thing. They were mirroring uh, Rhythm and Hughes' model of filming, cutting, and doing the visual effects on commercials. So then I learned a little bit more. Then we started, we did Zodiac, which was um, a feature, obviously, with David Fincher. And that was my first entree. We actually did that in the commercial division. And then The Curious Case of Benjamin Button was quite a bit bigger. And that was more on the feature side. And I started to realize that visual effects could have as big a crew, if not larger, than a big live action shoot. And it could be you know, really fun. So I was really bitten by the bug and how amazing artists were there and how dedicated they were to excellence. That really grabbed me and drew me. Yeah. Amazing. And you worked with Fincher all the way back to the Nine Inch Nails only video, didn't you? Yeah, we did the we did that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And some other commercials and stuff. Yeah. How does he approach the world of VFX? Is he quite minimal with it? How does, how does he like to approach it? Do you work closely with him or is it more more distant? I think that uh, he likes to avoid visual effects unless he needs them for the story. It's not because he doesn't know how to handle them. He handles them brilliantly. I think he comes to the table understanding what he wants. He lays it out 
and then he lets it happen. And then he, he comes in and he gives great notes. All of our experiences with him were great. I just think, you know, visual effects adds such another complex note to something where you're trying to get performance of an actor or it takes a lot of work to put them into a story and not let them take it over. You know, Benjamin Button had to have the visual effects or the story couldn't be told. And I think that's more what he moves towards as opposed to let's just have a a lot of visual effects. Benjamin Button was probably one of the most famous VFX films of the last however many years, wasn't it? When you came onto it, did it seem like it was even possible? No, (laughs) no, it didn't. (laughs) It didn't, but uh, somehow we got away with it. I think we got away with it because... We were making Brad Pitt old and no one knows what he looks like old yet. And I think that that's a real saving grace for digital humans. I think in Tron, which we did next, where we had to make Jeff Bridges young or in Terminator Dark Fate, where we were making Linda Hamilton and Arnold Schwarzenegger young, everyone really knows what they look like. And you have a a sixth sense when it's not working especially in dialogue, as I think a younger face is uh, much more rubbery and harder to animate in a believable way to what people already know or remember. It's a little bit like production designers talk about doing futuristic stuff is actually easier because when it's period, it all exists already. It's just you're talking about people instead of, you know, people and things from the 1920s, little props and things like that. So it does work both ways. Yeah. When you have a benchmark, it's scary. <laughs> so. Yeah, especially on something like Dark Fate, where there's a lot of pressure for people. You know, they've they've seen it before, not just because they've seen the actor. They've seen it in a very specific film where they want them to look as the similar way. That must have been quite hard for you guys. Yeah, it's very difficult. It's a real challenge. It was hard for me to watch another company, you know, because once you're on the studio side, you're a little bit outside the actual workings of how things are getting done within the studio. It's not like you're invited in to opine on their pipeline. So it was hard to watch them struggle. Yeah. So you're referencing here, you know, you'll move relatively recently, I guess, the last few years from being in-house to being, I guess, a part of the production. Could you talk about that separation? Well, you're very much outside of things and you're, you're responsible for supplying all the information that all your vendors need in terms of being really on top of scanning all the sets, scanning all the people that need to be digital, tracking all the costs, redistributing the movie. So it's a, it's a much more global planning that you need to do. So making sure everyone has what they need, making sure you're reporting to the studio. A lot of it is, you know, tracking the costs and making sure that the schedules are being adhered to. You're not inside necessarily a studio with, you know, many departments talking about the details of how the model or the character that you're making is going to go through the pipeline. You're just hoping and praying that they're going to do it well and (laughs) it's going to spit out the other side when it's time for you to present it to the studio or the get it in, into editorial. And it's a little bit different. One of the things I've noticed is that on those kind of big shows like Black Panther and lots generally, they seem to split up the shots because there are so many between so many different vendors. How do you manage that? Is that yourself that's in charge of that? And how does it go, you know, digital domain, you get this, double neg, you get that, et cetera? 
pretty much, I don't know if this just speaks to my, my poor planning, but <laughs> a lot of the movies that I've done so far, they're, you know, they're bigger on the studio side and you make the best plan that you can while you're in photography. You know, each studio has different rules. For instance, Marvel doesn't really like to go over 350 shots. At least when I was there, that was sort of the guideline per facility. And then what happens is after you've filmed and and you have a rough cut and you start to see what the costs are really going to be, then you have to redistribute what isn't working and add people and try to bring sometimes just the price down. Or for instance, on Sonic, which I just finished, the whole of it was given to MPC. And with COVID, it became clear that, and with growth, that they wouldn't be able to manage that. So we had to find several other vendors to make sure that we made the delivery. So you're much more focused on the overall delivery of all the parts and pieces on the studio side when you're doing the job. Do you find any difficulties from the fact that in post, I've in my career so far, I've only worked, you know, in production. And there is this idea that post, you know, it's the end. You are the last stop, you know, we'll fix it in post, as they say. Does that create a lot of problems, you know, ramping up there, you know, say once we've got a rough cut, we can even work out costs and things like that. It's quite close to the line, isn't it? It is close to the line and everyone's over it. And there's 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 usually no big chunk of money hiding anywhere because you're at the beginning and you can't push your problems down the line any further. So it is a challenge. And I, you know, I've gotten better with it over time. It, you definitely have to go through it. It's kind of like my analogy of the first time up the mountain almost killed me because it was Marvel and it was Black Panther and it was huge. And, uh, you know, it was a real learning curve for me to look at a movie that way. But, you know, it's, it's never hurt that much again. And you just get better at it. You just have to, you have to go through the storm, climb that mountain the first time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Speaking of uh, Black Panther, that was kind of the first big VFX movie for Ryan Coogler, Mm -hmm. wasn't it? So how did you guys work together with him to kind of achieve his vision, given that he hadn't had much experience with a massive Marvel movie like that? Well, um, he was very cooperative and open and we had a really great art department and amazing costume designer and just the way Marvel did things, the way they had their meetings and presentations of how things were going to go down. And this is before you're even, you know, at the location where you're going to do your primary filming. I just think that they help because they're such a force for doing these sorts of movies. They have a real structure that works. And they just sort of gathered it all in and they were a very open part of the planning. And so there weren't really a lot of questions. You know, we would just talk each sequence through and that's how we shot it. That's how we move forward. And that's how we did Black Panther. Amazing. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Easy peasy. Yeah. (laughs) I heard you in another podcast interview, the only one I could find. Uh, mentioned the importance of interns. Could you talk about what makes an intern stand out to you? What makes an intern stand out? Well, I first of all, I love the enthusiasm of all the new people coming in. It kind of brings you back. And I'd like to say that I think all interns should be paid. I think, I, I hope un, unpaid internships have been banned. I think they have. And uh, I just enjoy their freshness and their viewpoint. And 
helping them to grow. I think it's a good way to give back. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of interns, they are part of a massive department, possibly the biggest. You you and Stunt seemingly when you watch those credits, it's so many people, you know, digital this, digital that. How does it work for you? Do you have like a way that you manage? Because you're kind of the boss of all of them, really, aren't you, as the producer there? It's a difficult question. How do you kind of approach managing that many people and for one vision? Well, I try to make sure everyone has a job. And obviously, I don't manage every single person. I have a really great group of people that work with me. And filmmaking is not a solo sport, like at all. It's like the farthest from it. And uh, yeah, I, I try to plan with my team what everyone's doing so that people know. And then on this last movie, we didn't have interns. We just had PAs and we kept, you know, we'd add a PA and then six or eight months later, we'd move them to a junior cord role. And they were they were trained by my crew, Eric Stewart, Elijah DRC and Avery Mann. And, you know, for instance, people move with me from movie to movie. So they they start as a PA and they learn and then they move up and then they help train the new people. And we, we all enjoy them very much. So Lovely. I bet they, they love working with you. You seem like you'd be a great <laughs> boss, Lisa. <laughs> I try to make it fun. As a bit of a segue, looking kind of at the future of the industry, have you had much involvement with virtual production as yet? Um, you know, I'm, I'm interested in it. I I haven't seen a seamless production of it, but I'm always looking. I'm, I'm looking at some stuff right now that um, uh, a company called Visual Creatures is doing. I think doing things uh, in engine is really interesting. And, you know, I hope, I hope that we're getting there and that you can do that and actually export it out into final shots. But I, I haven't seen it yet. And I'm not an expert for sure. So. As a bit of a horizontal question, it's not exactly about virtual production, but I was doing some research for another interview I'm doing with a production designer, and he was talking about how he believes VFX and the art department are essentially becoming the same department. And there are actually, you know, quite a lot of (laughs) arguments and difficulties between who does what and things like that. He's kind of saying one day they should all be at the very least on the same floor. Do you see it the same way or do you still think they should be quite separate and more as they are now? Um, You know... (sighs) Usually visual effects, I, I think so far the way it's worked best for me and for the you know the visual effects supervisors that I work with is we need to take the art department's vision and the production designer's vision. And that usually is the focus until you're through photography. And then they should be invited in as much as they want. Although usually by the end of photography, they're over it and they, they, they want to extract themselves. But usually we try to carry over concept people as much as we can. Some production designers do show up and want to look at things and others just don't. They, they're just not, they come to the premiere and... <laughs> They're either annoyed that we mess something up or they're, they're, they're usually pretty happy, I guess. But, uh, you know, I think that they already do kind of work together because the art department is providing their concepts to previs and, and we're scanning locations ahead of time to, to do the most accurate version of previs. Uh, and then we take their sets and postvis that have been scanned and we use those to create the movie with the editors. So we kind of really are, but I think it would be awkward if too much visual effects was driving the concept of the movie, because I I don't think 
that's necessarily our job. But certainly on the back end of any movie, for instance, on Sonic, and we were still doing concepts in January to help with lighting and to plus out all CG environments that you just run out of time to get right when you're shooting because you have so many other things. You know, you have stunts that you're working with and the actor's performance and the director only has so much bandwidth with everything. And, you know, figuring out what they're shooting to really dig into what is an what is a big all CG environment going to look like. You don't necessarily have that until much later. Brilliant answer. Thank you very much for that, Lisa. Now, we, we finish off on Red Carpet Rookies with a little quickfire questionnaire, which is my own ode to In the Actors Studio. So I'm going to ask them one by one, if you could just think of the first thing that comes into your head. Are you ready, Lisa Brew? Sure. Number one, what is one of the best pieces of advice you've ever been given? Uh, talk less. <laughs> <laughs> very good. Number two, do you have a favorite film? Uh, I'd say right now it's uh, Silver Linings Playbook. Cool. Number three, what gives you a reason to get out of bed every day for a day of VFX producing even? Uh, yeah, it's just, uh, I'm a pretty happy girl. I'm a happy-go-lucky Irish girl. That's what I'm <laughs> says. I can tell. Number four, what job in the industry would you do if you weren't doing yours? Costume. Costume design, yeah. Number five, if you could work with one person, living or dead, who would it be? That's really hard, sorry. Brad Bird. Cool. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> What is a book? Number six, what is a book that everyone should read? A book that everyone should read. Wow, I have so many. Okay, the first thing that comes to my head, uh, The Angle of Repose by Wallace Stegner. Love it. Never heard of it. I'll look it up. (laughs) And finally, if you won an Oscar, who would you thank? Everybody. (laughs) (laughs) My parents, obviously. Fantastic. And on that note, our time must come to a close. Thank you so much, Lisa, for illuminating the complicated world of VFX. Thank you for listening to another episode of Red Carpet Rookies. To help us grow and be able to interview more amazing film and TV professionals, please do subscribe and drop us a rating on the Apple Podcast Store on your iPhone or online if you're an Android user. If you're interested in regular updates, the best thing you can do is to join our mailing list at redcarpetrookies.com or alternatively, find us on Instagram at redcarpetrookies or Twitter at rcrookiespod. I also tweet regularly about my own learnings in the business at Mike F. Battle on Twitter, so please do come and say hi. Thank you again for listening. We'll see you next time.